Hello SFIA audio listeners, in this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters, we'll take a look at what sorts of alien behemoths might be possible under known science. To hear it and every episode early and ad-free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash and use my code IsaacArthur. Good afternoon everyone and welcome to the SFIA monthly livestream Q&A. We'll get started in just a moment, but go ahead and start getting your questions in the chat window so our moderators can start relaying those to me as soon as we start. Please try to keep the questions concise and watch your spelling, and try to be polite to others in the chat. We usually go for about an hour so you probably want to grab a drink and a snack, though we'll take a break about halfway through too. With all that said, welcome and let's get started. Good afternoon everyone and welcome to our show, I will get my microphone on. Oh, it seems to be something which I'm putting on the While down. Isaac's putting his microphone on, I will talk. I'm Sarah, his Good afternoon wife. everyone. <laughs> <laughs> the person you've been hearing is my wife, Sarah. Uh, she is going to be answering, asking our questions today, I'll be answering them hopefully. Uh, so hopefully that's the only technical glitch we're going to have to start the day off with. Uh, we might as well get right into you guys' questions. Okay, well, we had a question from someone uh, at the end of the last live stream saying, I know I'm too late for the live stream, but do you think with the commercialization of space travel, we might be at the brink of a moon rush or a space rush? Uh, I mean, it's a pretty good chance overall. It really depends on exactly what, you know, if we're talking a 1940, sorry, 1849 style gold rush in California, I don't think so because it's not really a scenario that you just kind of like go out there and do it by yourself. And that is kind of critical to those kind of rushes is that you only need a couple of you know people who are displaced or really not what you call ultra rich can't just you know run off that place and do that. And so I don't really see it being that kind of rush. On the other hand, yeah, I mean we've been waiting 50 years for something to really go back on the moon and take place. And it does feel like that's probably going to be a period of time we won't have to wait again before we can say yes, they are real moon bases, real settled people. So hopefully, yes. How's our audio? And that's a good point uh, <laughs> while we're waiting to find that out, that if you don't get your question into the live stream while we're actually answering them live, don't despair, leave your question in the comments and it might be one of our early picks for the next live stream. That is entirely possible, I picked them somewhat arbitrarily about a month afterwards in many cases. So. <laughs> Alright, um, let's see, so get that adjusted. So the next question is from Calvin Green. He says, could you combine a black hole with a Bussard ram scope for energy plus refueling? Yeah, I mean, in general, this is one of the things we talk about in like black hole ships, for instance. Uh, <laughs> we'll get back to that question just a moment. I need to unpause. There's another model on the side that's got the live stream action, <laughs> and I paused it so it's you not the least bandwidth. That, that's what people know why you're... Yeah, it has me looking very wildly, crazily off the side. So. <laughs> with his mouth open. <laughs> <laughs> I'm what was sorry. the question again? I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> you just were like frozen in time. Okay, the question was could you combine a black hole with a Bussard ram scope for energy plus refueling? Mm -hmm. Okay, so the Bussard ramjet or ram scoop is the idea you can grab uh, all that hydrogen out in space and turn it into fusion fuel. And the better version of that is the, uh, the black hole because. Uh, at best, fusion is going to get you like 1% of the energy converted, and that's assuming you can actually do proton-proton fusion, which is really hard uh, compared to like deut uh, you know, deuterium or deuterium-tritium. Um, black holes, though, they don't care what it is. The mass goes in, and, and you know, the, uh, the Bremsstrahlian radiation comes out the other end. You know, it, it's also about 40 times more energetic if done right. So if you can make a little micro-black hole and have everything channeled into the throat of that, then yes, it absolutely does um, work better. Fix your mic again. That oh, was it. Okay. I've switched over to using a lapel mic this week because it hopefully would have resulted in better sound. Uh, let's try it again. If not, still no better sound. It's rubbing on the suit or something, and maybe loosen the jack. Yeah. You know, I got an even better. Well, you know, I probably shouldn't switch mics. We'll switch mics on the on the attic. So. Okay. This and is the lapel. It... All right. So Welcome static, once again to our live stream with its technical issues. Static every time you move, so you okay, must I will hold, hold perfectly still, still like this. Is it possible to hold perfectly still in outer space? 
No. Is no, it there's always quantum motion in the phone. In yeah. It's actually an interesting question. Is you think there's no friction in space? If it's empty enough, but uh, if you like an object spinning around or just passing through matter, it will eventually slow down just from interactions with virtual particles in the foam. There we go. Okay, so the next question we have is from Monster Derek, mm -hmm. and he says, "How would a rebellion in space work? How do you think a rebellion could happen on space stations if it happened?" On a space station? Cautiously. Uh, I mean, if we're talking one of the big O'Neill sonos, it's going to be the same deal as anywhere else, except you got the problem that there's many of these, and someone could theoretically decide to deal with a rebellion by opening the air up and just not allow out of the bottle. But on a space station, you have the problem that anytime somebody fires a gun on anything like a small space station, you might go ahead and open that bottle too. So uh, large amounts of violence are not your friend in space, and yet it's so much easier to do things like that in space. So it is good to be calm-headed. <laughs> Definitely. Um, just a moment here, trying to find for where the, the new questions for the month. Yeah. Okay, I guess the audio is now good. That's that's a good sign there. I'm not sure where the questions went. Sorry. <laughs> um, so we're getting ready to have a thunderstorm. Yes. <laughs> And it's going to show up just about the time that we want to be asking questions. And we'll see how soundproofed that the room actually is. It's decently, decently soundproofed. All right, so we got some questions ready? Okay, so Paul Leek II says, Hey, Isaac, will you ever be doing an episode on the different exotic materials that may exist under the different physical models that might be true based on the current information? No. And I'll tell you why we wouldn't do an episode on that. We, we've done one on metamaterials, for instance, and we'll do one on advanced materials at some point. And we talked about doing like a clock tech one on that. But the reason why that particular clock tech episode never emerged was because all of those things are so very different. And there's so many different hypothetical ones that trying to squeeze them all together and explain the various different physics they operate under struck me as just kind of a mess. You know, we don't really aim for like that. I, I say a lot of shows. A lot of presentations of the higher technologies that are kind of on the edge of good science tend to kind of just shove the information out and say here's this cool idea and gone we kind of aim to do it a little bit more in depth and explain it and that means at the same time we can't really do a quick survey episode that's going to give you 10 different materials that know 10 different physical laws that might exist because it just turned you a bit of a mess like why magmat or material based off magnetic monopoles would be very strong compared to say neutronium or something like smart matter. These are all very different ideas, and I don't think they'd mess well into one episode. Mr. Melon Monkey says, Hey, Isaac, recent headlines stated a lot of satellite near misses are caused by SpaceX's Starlink. Could that really be the start of the Kessler syndrome? I don't think so, but it's, it's always kind of hard to rule on these things. A key thing to keep in mind is we do keep putting more stuff in space. We also get hit by 2 million pounds of space garbage every year. And not all garbage, naturally occurring solar garbage. So don't assume that just because the planet's getting a few more satellites each way, maybe you know a few hundred pounds each, that kind of thing, that uh, the occasional nut or bolt coming out of these things represents a big existential threat. I would generally tend to guess we would probably need to get, you know, at least a few million tons of material in space before we'd actually have to have an active system, or else. Otherwise, it might just be a lot of damage popping up. And you're going to get damaged anyway, but uh, we'll get in that zone. But uh, right now, I would say not yet. What kind of stuff is space garbage? Mostly rocks, uh, silicate, carbon, iron, things like that. Like if somebody so smashed like a mountain apart and dumped on the planet. Space. Was that? <laughs> random axes flying through space. Yeah, random, yeah, it's just random garbage. It's just, and not garbage. Oh, see, garbage implies it's artificially made. This is just junk from like other asteroids colliding. Our satellites. Join that chunk occasionally, but not that much. They're very small in total. Dominic Aspidin, thank you for your super chat. He says that, uh, will you keep uploading narration-only versions of episodes to SoundCloud for us weirdos that listen to you while we sleep? Yes, yeah. That is actually the main reason why we do that. The reason there's an audio-only version of the show, period, is because uh, some people ask for an audio-only one they could listen to on their phone. Uh, while they're going to walk, they wouldn't need to like, be able to download it. They couldn't get the bandwidth for it. 
And then the immediate follow-up that was, please don't put music on these because often it's distracting when I'm trying to sleep. <laughs> I fall asleep every night to audiobooks. I don't want to have a musical score come. You know, I, I love the musicians we use in these, these episodes, but I don't want to hear them at 3 o'clock in the morning when I'm nodded off. So with one of those that's, ones that's like eerie in the background and you wake up with this dream yeah. kind of getting out of proportion. If we were going to cut down, I mean, we do two episodes. It takes like an extra two minutes to do the narration-only version. Um, and because uh, I'm just copying the file down and, and setting it off, but uh, if we were going to cut one of them out as the audio only version, it would be the one that was with the music since no. the episode has. Well, I'm leaving that like too. To That's fascinating too. <laughs> Technological singularity with Anmol Gupta says, "What will the everyday life look like in a Type Three civilization?" I don't think you'd ever have a Type 3 civilization in the context of anything kind of vaguely unified unless you had something that was amounting to fashion light travel, with the exception of something like a Borch planet. You could theoretically have a Type 3 civilization, that, or a College Chef 3 civilization that was a Borch planet. Uh, for those who don't know the context on that, we say that a, a civilization that uses all the energy of a planet, that, that planet gets from the sun, that's a K1, and we are a little below that right now, depending on how you want to look at it. Um, and then a K2 would be all the energy of a star, which is like 10 million times more. And then, oh, sorry, not 10 million, a billion times more. And then the energy of a galaxy, which is a billion times more than that, it would be a K3 civilization. And that's going to be spread all over a galaxy. So if you don't have fast night travel, you're not having any kind of civilization. And so just that many different bits and pieces. If you got a hundred billion different stellar systems, each of which themselves are K2s, you know, with a billion, billion times the population of one person, you're not going to have a unified civilization to answer what civilization is like for them, I don't think. Probably digital. Oh, that would be my guess. <laughs> Teotom Tosturs says, if tidal heating generates usable energy just from orbits, and if you could get a stable enough orbit, could this give you a free energy source? Now, one more time. If tidal heating generates usable energy just from orbits, and if you could get a stable enough orbit, could this give you a free energy source? No free lunches. Um, tidal energy, every time the moon and the Earth wrap around each other like that and cause the Earth, you know, the planet to go, which it does, like a big ball of jello, um, you know, the planet shifts in size a lot, so does the moon. Uh, the moon, when it was doing this before, started getting braked by that, that's why it's got the same face towards us. Earth is slowing down. Uh, every time there's a tide, the day gets a little bit longer, right? Every single time. Every time the Earth and the Moon wrap around each other, the day gets a little bit longer here. That's how that works out. So it's not really free energy. That's how you can generate it. Tidal generators. Yeah, you, you can generate energy off that well enough. Israel Bro says, Isaac, do you think the inability of humanity to unite and the tendency to splinter off into groups will guarantee human survival in the universe once humanity becomes a space-faring civilization? Um, I don't know, I'd say things like guarantee survival of something like that because it's kind of like saying, well, let's say, I've got, I'm not going to use the Roman Empire, I've got an old empire that did a lot of colonies, um, and then that empire gets trashed because someone blows up the capital or planet, whatever. Um, and all those little disparate civilizations that have so little in common, they barely notice each other. But etymologically, they can trace. They all use the same word for you know, blowing up capital or planet. All those really the same civilizations or species or whichever. Um, will things that originated from Earth still be around in a galaxy if we spread out to the stars? I'd have a hard time thinking it would wipe us out of another civilization at that point. But we all inventive, so maybe. <laughs> Johnny Wings says, hey, Isaac, I love your show. I just wanted to ask, I saw an episode, his episode suggestion of standing out in a civilization of trillions won the recent poll. Mm -hmm. Could I help write the script? It's already been recorded. <laughs> um, let's see. When is the actual date for that coming out? Uh, is that one of the ones that's actually coming out in August? I will check when that is coming out. But if you have thoughts or suggestions, it's already recorded. You could have a follow-up episode, right? We always have the option for follow-up episodes, and for that matter, that is exactly what we do the extended editions for. And uh, usually we have, I mean, I mostly do the extended editions on the ones that CuriosityStream is sponsoring, but there's nothing that requires me to do them that way. And uh, yeah, I can also switch around which ones are coming out when, but... Uh, Stay Out a Trillion, Civilization of Trillions is coming out October 7th. Yes. And it was... 
uh, written, recorded in, Two in weeks July. Ago, I believe. In July. Oh, a month ago. <laughs> yes. So, we we don't we don't want to put a lot of time on those. I'm afraid. Sorry. <laughs> yes, my oh. my husband likes to do things very far in advance. Preparation, preparedness, and implementation. Implementation. Is that another P? I couldn't think of any more P's. Mm. Anyway. Ian Cudmore says, what do you think this impulse drive that's being talked about now? Is it comparable to the EM drive and its dubious claims? Every new drive that runs on a system very different than that we already use now should be treated on the lines of probably not working until it's been proven, but it should always be assumed to be probably not working. We don't want to get in the habit of just naysaying them all the time, too. You know, this is a, a big difference between um, skepticism and pessimism. In the sciences, it's not like, well, I don't believe in leprechauns, right? Not because I think the idea is horrible and stupid and he thinks they might be real as a horrible, stupid person, but because I haven't seen any reasonable evidence for them. I think it would be kind of cool if they were leprechauns, you know? Um, when these new drives come out, it is, with some of them, obviously, kind of hard not to tittle at some of the ideas like that. Violates every piece of rules about Newtonian mechanics ever. That's just not going to work. But you always want to stay positive and optimistic on new ones that come out. The evidence, though, you do need to prove these things that I really do wish the media, popular media, would stop publishing every new wild scientific theory hypothesis or drive that hasn't been peer-reviewed yet. We're not trying to suppress it. Let it go through the normal channels to see if there's something there. Because it just results in the population thinking, hey, it seems like this stuff gets disproven all the time. I can't even think of a physical law that's been disproven in the last century, but people get the impression it happens, like, daily because of things like that. So I don't remember what the question was anymore. Oh, the impulse drive. Um, it's got, it needs to be looked into. We'll leave it there. Super chat from Mark Zimmerman. Thank you, Mark, for your donation. He says, hey, Isaac, a fan since 2018. Let's get an honest opinion from the man himself. Would you build a Kaplana or Stanford Taurus habitat first, and why? Okay, so the Kaplana, um, I always mispronounce that one. The Kaplana one's design and the Stanford design are both things you could reasonably do without going to full, like, O'Neill Island 3 design. Um, I like the Kaplana design a lot. I think it's more modernized. It's either one is potentially doable, but that would be the one I go with. Possibly because it's just got such a wonderful animation. So, <laughs> um, but yes, that's probably what I'd do. James Mays, how significant is the testing out of the National Ignition Facility? That would be a fusion question. I'm assuming here. Um, well, fusion is concerned. There's always this kind of a, you get kind of the two camps going on of this is the next big breakthrough that's going to get us fusion real soon, real cheap, and uh, this will never work out thing. And that kind of goes back to what I was saying a moment ago about skepticism. Um, people tend to fall into just the either this is a very soon or never at all. Uh, they're making a lot of good progress with that. I don't expect that to result in a commercial fusion reactor anytime soon. Uh, I tend to fall into the Takamak or big plasma Taurus category is the preferred one, but uh, I'll take whatever works. They're making a lot of progress there. That's, But it's just continuing progress. Not like a huge new benchmark, in my opinion. Dunal says, do you think we'll ever have a spacecraft that can travel at speed so close to the speed of light that it could go essentially anywhere in the galaxy, at least in a near instant? Well, that would be a relativity question. Um... If you go fast enough, close enough to the speed of light, from your perspective, you can get anywhere in the universe very quickly because the distance is, well, for you, the distance between you and other things will shrink down. Whereas for those observing you, your time slows down so much that you're moving quickly. To everybody else, it's still taking you a million years to get from here to the Andromeda galaxy, but from your perspective, it might only take a second. Uh, however, there are some really hard limits on actually trying to get that much energy on something. Uh, I'll give you an example. We're pushing something with a laser sail, and we're shoving it with a really powerful laser. We should be able to get arbitrarily high speeds then in terms of its gamma, how, how much time it's curved down. It's still getting basically a speed of light, but gamma, the Lorentz factor, says by what amount time is slowed down. Effectively, 
how quick you're going in terms of the speed of light from your own perspective to get to a place faster. So a gamma 100 would get you to some place basically 100 light years away in one year for you, 100 that time. Um, once you get to a little bit over 100, you start getting to a place where if we were pushing with that laser sail, for instance, you'd be running into resistance not just from interstellar dust particles, but from the cosmic microwave background radiation, which has been now blue shifted up from tiny little weak microwaves to now they're back up to basically human thermal body temperature rays, 100 times more powerful. And then to add on to that, you're hitting them much more often from your perspective. So. Um, you begin getting a big, powerful drag force that has to be overcome. At a certain point, you'd be shifted so high that that cosmic microwave background radiation and other ambient radiation dust would be ripping your ship apart faster than you could pour energy into it, even with a very powerful laser, even with a super material. So I would say at that point in time, you know, you, you're maxed out. I don't think you could even really get a spaceship up to, you know, a, a gamma of 100, maybe a probe or something like that, but not when it was actually meant to travel long distances. So in that regard, and that's just cutting your time down by effectively, uh, you know, a warping factor of 100. Um, nothing that will get you from one place to another in like a second, but something that might make it feel like it was, uh, you know, a, a few months to cross the galaxy, I couldn't rule out, but I think that would be really pressing it. That would be a ship that was one very slim-nosed cone being shoved by some unbelievable near impossible jet engine of some sort running on unknown physics that might as well be FTL at that point. Probably something that just lets you get from one place to another, or what felt like a, a decade for you, but it actually been a century in the outside time. Hmm. Maybe about the max. So no Star Trek travel yet. Oh yeah, no, no. <laughs> Jacob Germany says, "Do you have any plans for a solar punk themed technologies video? Solar punk being sustainable, technologically friendly, advanced, and decentralized in terms of control and power." Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I guess you got well. I remember when Cyberpunk was relatively new, because it's something that emerged from Blade Runner and uh, Neil Stephenson's books, um, but, uh, and, sorry, Will Gibson's books too. Um, probably more so, Neuromancer. Um, and you got the steampunk genre, and now the solarpunk genre, I'm not, I tend to think of these almost more as, as visual fashions and looks more than specific technologies. But uh, could you have an episode that was basically about decentralized solar? Yes, we could do that. Uh, it's kind of the opposite zone of arcologies. A lot of times when we talk about arcologies, it's the great big building running on a nuclear power plant or a fusion reactor. Uh, whereas, just as easy, you know, arcology could be something like my cabin in the woods with solar panels on top, a big battery blow, and like a, a basement full of hydroponics and uh, 3D printers, right? That's very realistically possible uh, as a future. I don't know what that would visually look like, and that's pretty much all there is to say on the technology of that is, you know, that's where you have your own power generation, and then to taste, you maybe get rid of roads in favor of quadcopters and things like that. It's hard to say, but it might be interesting to explore at some point. James Shep Shepagrell says, you've talked about black holes or planets, etc., that are so large that the event horizon extends past where it exerts 1G of gravity. Can you expand on or even do an episode about that? Uh, well, for clarification, we've never discussed one where the, the planet would be so big that it was actually inside the event horizon. Uh, just on general principle, other than passing references, I won't talk about what goes on inside the event holes. Of, uh, event horizons of black holes because we don't know. We just have some mathematical constructs, and I don't like to add into the certainty of the area we know nothing about. That happens a lot of times when people discuss it. Um, a birch planet is usually what people think about for that. And for clarification, many, many years ago, Paul Birch, the guy who gave us the orbital ring and a few other wonderful ideas, said, hey, we could build a gigantic shellboard not only around like a planet with orbital rings, that was the idea, is you could build an artificial orbital ring-based planet shell around something like Saturn. He said, we could make this so big it would go around a black hole even, or a star. Hey, we could do it around a galactic core if we want to. That would be the biggest effort. You could do several layers and you'd have differences in how fast time was running between them because of the you know, high general relativistic uh, time dilation of that black hole. And he didn't name it anything. We mentioned it uh, in our very first episode, Make Structures in Space, for about 30 seconds at the very end. And uh, it's almost never discussed outside that, so when I got around discussing it in the Mega Earths episode, I just said anything that was a shell board that was the size of a galactic central mass black hole or bigger 
was a Borch planet. So I thought we'd name that in honor of him. And I'm glad to say that name is stuck because he is under, he is less well known to the public than he should be. Uh, and he's, he's uh, no longer with us. Um, and uh, they can get to be as big as about an entire galactic mass in theory. The reason why there's that limitation is if you're aiming to have 1G at the surface layer, there's only so big you can get with a black hole and still have 1G at the surface layer and not be inside the event horizon. And that works out to be about a half a light year of memory cells in radius. So that's the upper end. I should note that the down end is usually what we're referring to. It's just a galactic mass, galactic core mass, which would be about a thousandth of that. Um, but uh, what was the question again? I'm really on rabbit trails today, aren't I? Did you ever do an episode on that? Yes, the very yes. first episode. You, well, no, that was like in passing. Megaorts. See the episode Megaorts for discussion of that topic. <laughs> so you're not planning to do another episode on that because you've already covered that topic in Megaorts. I would love to do another episode on that, but we haven't really got the visual assets to make it worth it. So I think the only ones we have are a couple that Jamie Joswick had done in Sorgio. Um, but a lot of times our discussions of Megastructure episodes are just limited to what we have for animations. Talking about something without an image to show people gets boring quickly and confused you know things so tom saba says would air breaking on re-entry with starship be improved if its cross section was oval rather than circular mm. uh, i'm not a good enough aerospace engineer type to be able to tell you on the aerodynamics on that one uh, a couple of editors off the top of my head olive repsom uh, or keith bloggis would be able to answer that question I don't know if you don't know, hanging out the chat today. Um, trying to think of who we have here that's really good on rockets who could answer that better. Uh, just in general, though, re-entry-wise, remember, you're not really trying to maximize your air drag. <laughs> you can get yourself in some trouble with a spaceship maximizing that. You get ripped to pieces pretty easy. But uh, I don't know. I, I can't give you an answer on that one, I'm afraid. Isaac Bordeaux says... What do you think the main impacts of Starlink and other satellite constellations will be? Hopefully, uh, you'll be able to get internet anywhere, even down a valley. And I think that's a mistake folks sometimes make these days, is it's not that we're trying to get uh, internet on the North Pole, because we really need to have internet on the North Pole. It's that we get a lot of areas that are much more up and down and curvy, and we have some around here, like a river valley or a park. There's no internet there because it's so hard to get a tower that you, know, you have to build one pretty much on top of that specific hill. Um, and things like Starlink give us the option to have people be able to be almost anywhere that we have civilization, but still get reception, and that's awesome. Um, and I don't think that we need to worry about these causing much the way of Kessel Syndrome incidents yet, but I think it is very important that we start putting in place rules about how you deorbit them and maintain them, track them, make sure they're still existing and not lost. <laughs> I think we got time for a couple more questions before we get to the break. Medievalist says, let's pretend that the UFOs we have seen blurry images of are actually alien ships. What does that tell us about these aliens? For example, that they don't have cloaking technology against the human eye? Yeah. Um, I've done this with Jimmy. Some, uh, Jimmy Church, he runs the show Fade to Black. Uh, he had asked me one time, uh, you know, putting aside your skepticism for the moment, and he described to me a cylinder they'd seen in space. Uh, oh, they're floating there. I said, "What would that be if, if what we, you know, what from our observations of you from that?" I said, "Well, it'd have to be a cylinder about four thousand kilometers wide, hanging in space in geostationary orbit, to meet that uh, texture." I said, "Oh, okay." So, but I said, "Oh, yeah, it'll be a McKendry cylinder." But if anyone's visiting with one of those, uh, they, you, we would see that. I would think <laughs> it's not really very subtle. But um, the blurry ones we see, there's not really. I mean, the blurriness is not indicative much other than the fact that outside of Hollywood you almost never actually get a clear picture of anything that's moving. Um, you know, satellite images are blurry. Um, most of them have a correcting filter that tends to in some ways make them be more blurry or outlined. Um, you get these blurry images, and I think we did look at in that one episode where we looked at the, uh, the three Navy ones, the three Navy UFOs, what it would indicate, and what it usually would indicate is that they would have to have some kind of technology that broke the laws of thermodynamics specifically. Which is possible. I mean, any civilization worth its salts could be putting all its effort into breaking those laws. It's just I don't think they can do it. But if they could, then you might see ships like that in some respects. It's just then you ask why they have such vast amounts of overwhelmingly useful power available to them and, and make ditzy little saucers. 
<laughs> one more alien-related question. Well, here. It's, it's like putting a jet engine in, the, in the, like one of the old like little go kart. <laughs> the game go. crasher, the master gamer. Would the physical proof of faster than light be possible and practical? To be a good candidate or reason for there being no alien life, or at least no intelligent life. No, fast light travel only ever exacerbates the Fermi paradox, with a couple of exceptions. One of which we kind of talked about in the uh, Edge of the Universe episode with hyperspace. Um, if you're going and constantly colonizing younger universes, as well. Uh, and another one would be like a Dune-style Fournier space one, which we have an episode on Fournier space. Actually, the next episode I'm writing. Um, you know, then you'll jump to whatever the most ideal planet is for you, so you might never even go near planets that weren't your specific preferred one, like ours, for instance, uh, unless Earth was ideal for you. Um, the uh, thing about FTL is a, one other exception. If FTL works, but it does indeed have the time causality issues we have, it might be that the reason why it works, but we never see aliens, is because every time someone flips their drive on, they obliterate their civilization. Which is actually a very realistic possibility for stuff like that. If you're playing around something who, by its very nature, is supposed to mess around with time, there is a good possibility that there's some sort of correcting mechanism that prevents that and just deletes out that you ever did that. You know, so um, that's what the Nokia self-consistency principle. Uh, I think we talked about that in our time travel episode. One of the two time travel episodes, anyway. Um, otherwise, though, if you can travel faster on light, it only makes everything with the Fermi Paradox 10,000 times worse. Because then you got to explain not why you haven't heard from civilizations 100 light years away from you traveling at like a tenth the speed of light. you got to explain why you haven't heard from the billion other stars in you know the galaxy that could get here in a couple of weeks, or the ones from the entire supercluster of a million more galaxies that could get here and colonize. And so it just it doesn't work well for that. All right, we'll go ahead and head to break, and we'll be gone for about four minutes, then we'll get back to more of your questions. So we'll be on break for a few minutes, and it's a great time to get a drink and a snack or get some more questions into our moderators for the second half of the show. If we don't get a chance to get to your question today, though, you can still leave it in the comments section, and I'll try to get to it as time permits. There was one from last month, though, that I thought we should tackle now on the break. Stephen Sullivan asked, how fast would a Muamua-like object need to be moving for us to conclude that it was not naturally created? Now if you did not know about a Muamua, it is an asteroid force detected in the fall of 2017, and it was already on its way out of the solar system at the time. It is presumed to be interstellar in origin, and the reason for this is simply its speed. It reached a maximum of 88 km per second relative to the Sun, as compared to Mercury at 48 km per second, 35 for Venus, 30 for Earth, and a mere 5 for Neptune and Pluto. The further an object is from the Sun, the less gravity it experiences and the slower it needs to go to orbit, and vice versa you have to move faster as you seek to orbit closer. Things coming in from outside our solar system would speed up as they fall sunward, same as something falling on Earthward. But unless they are going beneath a certain speed at a certain distance, they're not going to enter orbit, but just bend a bit, and the faster you're going the less your trajectory will be bent around a massive body. So when you spot this asteroid, which is also fairly weirdly shaped even by asteroid standards and saw its velocity and position, we concluded it could not be from our solar system, but instead must have come in from interstellar space at high speed, though not very high speed. It would have been traveling at roughly 26 kms, roughly between Earth and Mars speeds around the Sun. Again, it would have sped up as it entered the system and fell sunward. Stuff gets ejected from solar systems by natural perturbations all the time, and that would not be an implausible speed for one. Now, a lot of folks thought it might be an alien ship for that reason. We never discussed it much on the show because I didn't really see any basis for that claim other than being weird-shaped, which is true, but asteroids are rarely even vaguely spherical and often weird. Now, Stephen's question is how fast would such an object need to be going to make us think it might be a ship or probe, not some natural object. That's tricky because you're asking what makes you suspicious, but the big flag for probably not natural would be anything over 1500 kilometers per second, or just under half a percent of light speed, as we have seen rogue ejected stars heading out of the galaxy at those sorts of speeds. It also starts hitting the speed zone where we can think of folks saying that's fast enough for a probe or ship. Keep in mind a Muamua moving at 26 kms is going to be a bit less than 1% of 1% of light speed. It needs almost 12,000 years to cover a light year, or over 50,000 to reach the nearest star if it were headed that way, which it is not. 
we can contemplate a civilization sending out ultra-slow probes, akin to Voyager, but remember, Voyager was for observing all planets and our discussion of it visiting other solar systems is utter hyperbole. Realistically, so is something like Arthur C. Clarke's Rama spaceship, a big alien O'Neill cylinder moving at similar speeds, from his classic Rendezvous with Rama novel that Amuamura got compared to even though it's far tinier incidentally. Now if you're a channel regular you already know there's a ton of ways to make a ship leave this solar system much faster than that, including ones we already have the ability to do, and realistically those are going to be much easier to implement and get a ship to at least 1% of light speed than trying to build some device that still works 100,000 years later. So that's the magic number for Steven's question, about 1% of light speed or higher is probably not natural, anything doing a tenth of that speed is probably worth eyeballing if it gets into our solar system. One last note though, if an alien was sending the probe in to be subtle, then they should send it in faster but then decelerate its more mundane speeds before it got in system, and sending it anywhere near the Sun is a mistake, since not only does that make it closer to us and easier to see, but more brightly lit by the Sun and easier to see. Alright, I hope that answers Steven's question, now let's get back to more of your questions. And we're back. Now we're gonna try to speed up uh, questions a little bit on the second half, I hadn't realized quite what a backlog we were getting up there. Yes. Gervius Arsenal says, what do you think of the presentation of the Tesla bot? Uh, I think that, as usual, uh, um, Musk is very good at presentation. So. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see how useful it turns out to be. But, I mean, he makes a lot of good progress. I'm going to speed up answering questions, so we'll leave it. I liked it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Fabio Urquhart says, What do you think about the possibility that a sophisticated city, I'm sorry, sophisticated civilization, simply goes to sleep because they have an augmented reality? goes to sleep because they have an augmented reality? I'm probably not quite getting what you mean by that kind of context. Usually when we talk about a civilization going to sleep, uh, we're talking about a virtual reality, we mean they've uh, basically taken the whole civilization and put it into some kind of digital layer. Augmented reality uh, is where you're walking around and on your glasses or your eyeball it's painting things like uh, the photo ID of the person you're just talking to so you've got their biography there or you look at a flower and it brings up the wiki link for it or you're watching TV out the corner of your eye. I wouldn't really see how that would put a civilization to sleep. You might want to rephrase that one and put it back in the questions. Okay. Ian Crone, thank you for your super chat, and he says, what do you think the future holds for health and fitness? Healthier and fitter civilizations. Um, I mean, the one thing is we often say we're in much worse shape than we were a century ago, and that is true. Uh, at the same time, we live a lot longer uh, and we die a lot less from other stuff. So we haven't really gotten good at keeping ourselves fit and uh, um, in the modern era, even though we have all the better medical technology because we don't really do as much physical labor and we got food aplenty and very tasty food. Um, and <laughs> I haven't had lunch yet. <laughs> but um, let's see. Uh, I think that you will start to finally get that point where, like, we constantly make fun of diet programs that rely on this miracle fat-burning pill, and we should for the most part, but those will at some point in time become a reality. Uh, but they won't become a reality on an infomercial at midnight, they'll become a reality on every news channel telling you that's been peer-reviewed. <laughs> Jekyllis says, I liked your episode on uplifting. What animal or race do you think would be uplifted? Do you think it would be useful to uplift an animal species when we begin to colonize space? You know, I'm sure John and I talked about that. Um, we did the uplifting episode as a two-parter with Jean-Michael Gaudier, and uh, I, he always liked the, the aquatic suggestions, and so I, I, we tend to fixate the episodes on those because, you know, a monkey-type race should theoretically be able to build technology too, but a marine species would not. No, no use of fire, no metals, no, you know, pottery. Um, the one that I think we'd be most likely to uplift ourselves um, would probably be cats and dogs a little bit. I don't think there's anything that we'll actually want to have a fully human intelligence, though. That would be a lot harder to engineer than I think people tend to assume anyway, because there's a lot of a lot more architectural, right? 
but at the same time, do you really want the cat or dog like to sit around and watch you while you're naked and getting dressed to suddenly be human level intelligent? Probably not. That's disturbing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Okay, thank you Household Adventures for your super chat. If oil and hydrocarbons are from dead biological matter, how sure are we that aliens would have access to cheap energy such as oil and gas? Well, um, one of the oldest fuels mankind has is ethanol, as you say, because it's just booze. I mean, it's bad booze, it's very cheaply distilled booze, but it's still booze. Um, they would have access to that. Uh, methane is way more common than oil or coal. And uh, they likely have access to that too. It's, it's all over the place. Uh, if they don't have the, you know, the naturally occurring fossil fuels, they would have access to biofuels like wood, uh, like ethanol. And they might just, you know, we invented the first solar panels uh, for given value of solar panels about the same time cars were just starting to take off. Have we started noticing that a little bit earlier? Have we gotten semiconductors 50 years for the call? We might have done it a completely different way, too. So I don't ever really think of that as a big holdup. And, but I do think you'd have that. If you're assuming you know, old planets, then you should have a lot of stuff lying around, unless it was really tectonically active, in which, I mean, really tectonically active, in which case, I don't know that you'd ever have much of a civilization emerge anyway, because that tends to imply, you know, civilization is the art of living in cities. Or to build one of those that the roof keeps falling down from an earthquake all the time. But it's possible. Q9073. What are your thoughts on the recent media hype following the latest test results from the National Ignition Facility? Besides breaking even, what would you consider a turning point in fusion energy? Um, well, it's always how do we define breaking even, all including all the energy we poured into it, you know, just in general, just what went into the reaction. Um, to me, the turning point isn't even when it, I mean, the turning point's when you have when you can sell for less than a reactor that you build out of, you know, for like uranium or less than a solar panel that does as much. But I'd say anything that actually allows you to sustainably produce more than a megawatt of power uh, for a week in a row, that's where I'd start saying now you have a practical new energy source that we can start to upscale and use commercially, or at least start thinking about doing it that way. Okay. Valentian Metz says, have you considered doing a specific episode on current day cryogenics, Alcor, etc.? Maybe talk to some of the guys who work there about the current state of the technology. Yeah. Actually, I feel like I just kind of unintentionally snubbed the guys that have um, the, the work of the... They're doing very impressive work on fusion, not to move on to the new question, but uh, again, when we're talking about actually using it as a real power source, there are certain benchmarks that needs to hit from a practical level, too. That's what we're referring to, not the work they're doing, which is impressive. Um, Cryonics-wise, uh, I think I actually did send an email once out to Alcor, and they never replied. I had been contacted by somebody who was doing research on freezing heads, and I thought about doing an episode on it, but it, it's never quite materialized. Um, I'm not really sure that's always own to be doing modern cryonics stuff because really it comes down to freezing brains with minimum damage. Our usual interest is what's the application of this technology. And we don't usually dig into the intricacies of how one of those works. Like we don't sit down and explain exactly how a nuclear reactor works. We explain the basic concepts of how a uranium fusion cycle works and what some of the major you know hurdles and safeguards are. For freezing, we've already discussed those in our climax episode. It's how you keep the crystallization, the cells from happening while you freeze it, and then how you thaw it out and revivify it. And it's that crystallization thing, how do we not damage it? That's really the hard one. Melmon Medical said, thank you for your super chat. He says, you said it's unlikely that there is a K2 or 3 civilization anywhere nearby. What about life that exists on time or dimensional scales that we merely can't perceive? Well, technically, a K2 or K3 civilization is, is based on how many watts of power it has access to. So if it's operating really, really fast, it might be uh, you know, a K3 because it burns through energy really quick. Um, but it's not that much energy, just very use, fast use of it. Uh, same for like a, one that operates really, really slowly. Um, they could not be K2 even while they're actually a K3, as it were, just because they're using the energy so slowly. Um, you know, I saw those civilizations we talk about, like, civilizations at the end of time with black hole farming. Those aren't even K1 civilizations. They're like K 
0.1 or something like even smaller, although they still could encompass you know galaxies worth of civilization. Um, but uh, that's that's kind of a critical concept here because when we say there's no K2 or K3 visible, very important to that is the fact that we be able to astronomically detect these things by how much power they're emitting. Um, so that's a caveat that should be on there. But time scale wise, um, your time scale should be based on principally two things: how fast your thinking occurs, which should be at you know it might not be at chemical speeds; it might be at optical speeds, which is over a million times faster. And then your own physical scale too. I don't think you could make life all that much smaller than we do now. Maybe an order of magnitude, you know, smaller and still have brains, but that'd be about it. So I don't think you'd get those scales we wouldn't see. And I'm not sure that they still wouldn't be visible, you know, because in some ways, how visible a civilization is is how much energy they're using, and how much energy they're using is how much energy they can use, which is, say, all of it. They should always want to be using as much as they can. And that would seem like that would be equally visible then. Alex Sobey says, so what do you think about dreams? What do they mean? Nothing. How do they work? Will <laughs> we be able to use them in any way through science? Um, dreams can obviously indicate a lot of things psychologically, but uh, I, you know, I, I think it's it's uh, ornamancy. I believe it's called uh, dream magic. Uh, has a I'm probably not pronouncing that right. O n e i r o mancy m e n c y. Um, the study of dreams, if I remember that right, uh, has been a very popular thing, even before psychology, and has certainly been studied a lot by folks like Jung or Freud. Um, and uh, I don't think that there's all that much to dreams. They all replays while your brain's kind of on, and I think that's one of the things people forget. We talk about, like, your brain, only, you only use 15% of your brain. That is not true. You use the whole brain. And when you're asleep, you still use your whole brain. That's why you can still kind of think semi-rationally in them at times. Your brain is building up some construct off of various random signals and replays of the day or so forth. What do they mean? Probably not that much. But... Uh, I don't think they're going to get a lot that will learn from that other than maybe to help people figure out how to learn while they're asleep or how to be less stressed out by reviewing their day in a less stressful fashion while asleep, something like that. Hopefully what we'll learn how to do is figure out how not to sleep anymore because while I enjoy it, you, you know, it's like third of your life that you're losing to sleep. And if you could come and be refreshed constantly without need for sleep, that you could just not need to sleep and still be physically energetic, mentally energetic without that pause, that would be a nice addition to the day, but your mileage may vary on that one. <laughs> Yasha says, how many years before we replace most non-creative jobs with automations on a large scale? Um, you know, I just got done giving this talk to Lincoln Labs, um, and we have the episode coming up on that. Um, uh, human machine teaming on, on September 9th. And one of the points we make in there is that from day one, uh, people have thought of computers and robots as getting better at blue-collar jobs, and from day one, the first job they got rid of was a white-collar job, which was, say, computers. Uh, that was a profession before we had devices that did that. They are the first ones eliminated by that. Um, you know, the Harvard computers, uh, a group of women who helped calculate a lot of stuff we needed uh, at the time, is uh, actually a very fascinating story. Um, but uh, that's a job profession that's just gone. White collar jobs have often been the first to get lost. I wouldn't be surprised if creative jobs were theoretically something AI got rid of too. You also have to ask yourself, why do I actually want an artificial human level intelligence? And I can't think of any reason you'd ever need a task done by that level of intelligence that wasn't creative. Otherwise, you know, so many tasks could be simplified to a few neurons at 100 billion. So, um, what will most people do for a job after we have things highly automated? What would we do in all the such creative jobs? I don't think that's a day we'll ever see. Not because we can't make a machine to do a job, but because I, I don't think that that really encompasses what you want with AI. I think a lot of times what you want with human-level higher AI is something that can actually do something a human couldn't think of. Because we don't have a shortage of humans. We, we don't need more AI to replace humans. There's 8 billion of them that need something to preoccupy themselves. You know? <laughs> so... Super chat from Andrew Hartley. Thank you, Andrew. What do you most wish to see in future works of science fiction that can better reflect our current best understanding of the universe? Um, 
you know, I think everyone tends to assume, and I, I, I talk to a lot of sci-fi writers, a lot of new ones who, you know, ask me for advice, and I think they're almost all coming in to assume that I'm going to tell them you need more scientific realism. What I usually tell people is you need to have a good solid plot and don't worry too much about the scientific realism getting in the way of that plot. Uh, try to have all, you know, be well-researched, focus on a couple areas to bring people new scientific knowledge. That's the one thing I always want to see in sci-fi works is whether it's really super important to the plot or not, find some piece of science that's not as well known to people and tell them it. Tell them it accurately and, and clearly. It doesn't have to be you know, the base of the plot. You can wave it aside for your FTL drive or things like that, but give people some new scientific knowledge when you read the book. And that was what I'd like to see a lot in one of these books. Other than that, though, there are some really overused tropes. Um, plants that are one ecosystem with one little village on them. That's got to stop. If you want to do that, just build a, have, have a, an only or so on a planet instead or something like that. So that's probably the one that bothers me the most. Joshua Murphy says, if someone managed to create a functioning wormhole, would you have to change your faster-than-light videos? No. I have a video on wormholes. They're going to want history at that point, aren't they? What? We have we have the wormhole videos. Uh, we've got two of them, I believe, haven't we? Uh, and I'll just tell people to go see those. Uh, <laughs> My longest thing I think on FTO is that it's the same as with thermodynamics. Um, I don't think you're able to find a way to break them, but I'm happy to be proved wrong. It's what I was saying earlier about skepticism. There's a difference between being a skeptic and being cynical or pessimistic. I'm skeptical on these things. I would love to be proven wrong about it, but I don't expect to be. But right. I won't think I'd have to change anything because I've never told people this is absolutely impossible and something that shouldn't be allowed to exist. I've, we've gone into some of the ways it could happen. Would I have to release a new video on it? Yes, but I'd be one of many dozens of people probably releasing one at that point in time because there's some of the folks who actually focus on the science coming out today. And uh, we try to look at the stuff that's elsewhere, so we probably stop doing more videos. <laughs> Matthew Cunningham, which is better, space colonization or planetary colonization while remaining interconnected with each other like different countries trading with each other? Um... Well, I think in the context of probably suggesting like asteroid habitats and, and um, rotating habitats like Oneosonos or Kapana, et cetera. Um, I would say that it's, it's not an either or, but you definitely have like a Dyson swarm. People picture a Dyson sphere they wouldn't think it's be crashing into each other all the time. They say, well, if those were Oneosonos, no, they'd still be farther apart. They're like one volume the size of Earth would have one of those cylinders in it, and that's it. So it's very empty in Dyson swarm, but at the same time, you're a lot closer together. You'd have hundreds of other ones that were actually within real live speaking distance of you on the phone that most be like a one second lag time. Uh, whereas with planetary colonization, you never are going to be able to have more than like, at best, a short four minute lag time on each way when Mars is in conjunction or Venus is in conjunction. No. Uh, if you want to have a civilization that holds itself together, tons of space orbitals is the way to go. The Kevman 11 says, can you do an episode on the standardizing of technology between different races, alien races, and ourselves? Basically, how we technologically interconnect similar to the opening of Valerian. Well, could I do an episode on that? That's a good question. I have no idea. Um, you should send his ad, uh, advanced ideas in advance. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I can't answer that because I'd have to think on that a little bit more. It does actually sound like an interesting idea, though. But, Send uh, your ideas in advance to Isaac.a.arthur at gmail.com. <laughs> Isaac.author.utube oh. at gmail.com. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's all that hard to find, that. <laughs> find, your, find your solutions here. Okay, moving on. <laughs> Just don't give them my phone number next time. your phone number. I have to look it up. Well, that's, that's good. <laughs> any rate, Scott Rotherham, can you talk about an ultimate system where a maximum amount of Dyson swarms orbit a massive black hole and how likely this would be? What was the question again? Something about Dyson swarms? Can you talk, you can always talk, mm -hmm. about ultimate systems where a maximum amount of Dyson swarms orbit a massive black oh, hole yeah. and how likely this would be. Um, I remember seeing one that was on the ultimate solar system and it was a cool idea but I'm thinking at the time I was like, pfft, better than that. Um, 
sometime sort of like 2010 or so when I was particularly bored I, I tried to work on how you make a Dyson swarm Dyson swarms and at some point in time this emerged something called a red globular swarm but um, you could absolutely do solar systems around solar system we did a, a CO episode making suns that would be the one I think we discussed that in and how close you could pack them but basically it's a heat loss issue the more you want to pack in your density is going to fall off uh, inversely right so if you want to have you know 10 times as many people in an area um, you know an area containing 10 times as many people or 10 times as many stars or say 100 times as many stars right 100 times as many stars produces a, a, a volume that will be as bright 10 times further away so if you got 100 times as many stars packed into a volume of you know stars orbiting each other for maximum heat dispersion you could have 100 times as many people living in that but it would have to be 10 times wider to accomplish the heat. If something is 10 times wider, though, it would have a thousand times or 10 cubed volume, so your density of population drops a lot. And that kind of goes with that effect. All right, we have a question from Alan Lambert. Thoughts about the trope that we're 50 years away from fusion being practical, and we have been for about 75 years. 20, as I usually hear. Uh, I'm fusion pretty sure I read it. He said, I think he said 50. Oh yeah, I just I'm used to hearing it as twenty. So. Ah. Uh, fusion, the technology of the future, and always will be. Or fusion, the technology of tomorrow, and always will be. Um, you know, I think this is the uh, um, big thing with that is, I, I think I mentioned this before. We went from nuclear fission to nuclear bomb in like ten years to practical generators, right? And then we went to fusion bomb a thermonuclear device in about 10 more years. And so I was thinking, well, you know, in 10 or 20 years, TOPS are going to have commercial fusion. And so they said, you know, fusion technology then. That's when that started up. Nobody really thought it was going to be all that easy after that. It was just kind of hope. It, it's been delayed. And here's the big thing. You have to build a gigantic and expensive facility to collect new data each time. And uh, you got to get that funded, analyzed. Go talk to Congress or the EU and say, can we please have another $10 billion build a new one because we need to check this data point right here. And okay. And then 10 years later, you get to finally start building. And 10 years after that, it's done building. And you flip the thing on, you have some more data. That's the delay on fusion. Uh, that's fundamentally what it comes down to is each new piece of information, we have to get a new building made basically to check it. And that's just slowing things down a lot more than it did with fission. Merv Johnson, thank you again for your super chat. He says, you're my best excuse to procrastinate writing Thanks a sci-fi novel. <laughs> this month, I simply can't go any further before you talk about stealth spaceships. Um, you'll enjoy the episode, then. I have to make the video for that. It's the next thing on my task list after recording, was it episode 315? Um, I don't know if anybody else has noticed the episode numbering on these things. Uh, 307A, stealth spaceships. Um... That's coming out. It's probably up on the screen. That's why I don't know what the episodes are. I put them on the screen during the live stream. Yeah, excuse me. I'm, I'm having a slow, low coffee day. Okay. Um, yes, that will be a fun episode. Then we're going to do the one on hiding entire civilizations after that. Um, what was the question? Or was that just more saying hi? Hi, Morph. <laughs> it's almost 5 o'clock. We'll take a couple more questions and I'll go rest my brain, which is fairly overheated. It does look a little overheated. Mm. Um, the Game Crasher, the master gamer, could you create a true Dyson Sphere via active support and tech you'd need to create a birch planet? Absolutely. Um, yes, you could. So what you do is you create the big Dyson Sphere, and then you put people on the inside of it, and they all fall into the sun. Um, Ouch. <laughs> that sounds horrible. Well, so it's, you could do it on the outside, right? Um, you have basically a big solar collector on the inside, uh, and then everybody lives on the outside with like light towers, for instance. So it's just a big, big shell around the planet, uh, the sun that everybody lives on. The problem with a, a big Dyson sphere is that the only gravity at that point is the sun sucking you into it. That's why you have to do things like ring wards and stuff like that. Um, and there's no way around that unless you have artificial gravity. Uh, otherwise, everyone just falls into the sun from the inside. Same for the kind of hollow earth setup. And that's actually an interesting aspect of calculus, is that if you uh, build a sphere, a hollow sphere, uh, inside it, it's not that at the center there's no gravity like it is with earth. Inside a hollow sphere, or any sphere shell, there is no gravity at any point inside it from that sphere. If there's something inside it, deeper down that has gravity, like the core of the earth, 
then there's that gravity pulling you into it. In this case, the sun, it sucks you all down into it. So, but you could build that you know, Dyson sphere, that big solid sphere, yes. Dustin Adams says, do you think the new Dune movie will be any good? I hope so. Um, you know, I, I just recently had done a review of the David Lynch 1984 film on Dune with uh, reels, reels of Justice, uh, and I was the defense. They, they try films there, and I lost, barely. But it's a hard film to defend, Dune 1984. I just like it anyway. Uh, I did like the Dune miniseries from sci-fi. I like the one they did, the Children of Dune, was even better. Um, I'm keeping my fingers crossed that the new film will be good. And uh, if it isn't, then movie adaptations are hard. And one thing I'll say on that is every producer has to put a little bit of a change on it just to get crammed in there. I, I don't know how you even get it in. I think they probably do two films for it, but it's a long book and it doesn't really do well for compression. Um, that's a big problem for with producing in the first place. And then the other aspect of that is better as a TV show, I'd say. Uh, you got to adapt a little bit to the modern culture as an interest, visually, and then you've also got to try not to piss off the fans, which is almost always a losing game. <laughs> so, uh. Sluggo three slug, thank you for your super chat. And he says, is there some kind of limit in regards for gravitational well of a planet where there would be an impossible for a civilization to get into space? I don't think so. Um, I mean, a neutron star, right? Like. Uh, Oh, my God, I've forgotten this. Robert Ford, he did a book called Dragon's Egg, which has to do with civilization on the surface of a neutron star. Um, you're not getting off of one of those with the chemical engines, obviously, but then you're not living on one of those with the chemical life forms. Um, a planet eight times more massive than Earth might have double the gravity at its surface, right? maybe, if it's got the same density, right? Um, you could still get off of that planet with a chemical rocket. It's just a little bit harder. And you're having a lot less payload on the other end, but that still leaves a lot of other options available to you, too. And that just means that maybe instead of launching your first rockets in 1950s, you launch them instead in 1990s or 2090s, right? Um, you can eventually do that. So Matthew Rand says, what type of current tech would you use to protect a spaceship in our solar system from radiation and space junk? What type of current tech would you use to protect a spaceship in our solar system from radiation and space junk? Armor. Uh, just armor. Dead, dumb, raw matter is always your easiest way to do that. Uh, I see a side question from Jamie Russell about the gravity thing. Um, look up Gaussian shell and gravity. No center, Jamie. That will probably be the answer you want. Or for anybody else who's trying to figure out why there's no gravity inside there, it is a math-based explanation. It's not going to do well to go into more detail today. Um, but basically, thicker armor on spaceships, that is always going to be your go-to unless you get something really high-tech. You just have to spend energy pushing along at that point. And David Vander Hayden says, have you ever considered writing a website FAQ or series on common mistakes that fictional writers make? Maybe a compendium of common misconceptions people have for world building as a resource for sci-fi writers. Well, write a book on yeah. sci-fi. Uh, like about seven years ago, I was getting frustrated with because uh, I was on a forum with a lot of sci-fi authors, a tendency to repeat the same kind of basic mistakes over and over again. And I said to myself, you know, I need to like make a note of these. I can just send them to them. Nothing they wanted that. And then I, I said, you know what? I can put together a, a little slideshow on that for them. And why don't I read this off? And that got us a channel. So that's basically with that. We got a channel on that. So, so anyone's always welcome in. to take these and put them in a wiki. Uh, Orion's always a good place. TV tropes a good one. See any of their tropes that have to do with the heading of uh, sci-fi writers have no sense of scale. So you could just say, if you are a budding sci-fi writer, listen to more of Isaac's shows. Absolutely. Yeah. No. Right. <laughs> and then remember. What matters most is a coherent plot. <laughs> you don't, don't abandon a good story arc because one of the things we say in the show is like, that's impossible. If you want to have aliens invading from another solar system, uh, try to do a little bit better than they want all water, right? But don't don't just trash the idea because you've watched too many of our Foy Paradox episodes and no longer believe aliens might exist. Right? But don't have them coming to steal our water. That's so stupid. <laughs> <laughs> do we have time for one more question, or we... <laughs> The, the Game Crasher, Master Gamer, do we have a way of ranking civilizations without including its power output like the Kardashev scale? You know, seven years ago. <laughs> 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 I 
<laughs> I've never brought it back out again, but I had a, a scale in that first episode, Megastructures in Space, where we had an alternate one for basically what the population of the various megastructures would be. And not long after that, because I had so many different ideas for how that might have worked better, I realized this never works. Someone will eventually put one together, but it's, it's almost taxonomical at that point. Things like how many people are in a culture of uh, two of civilization, or what's the technology level of someone who's K three? I don't think it works out very well, especially when we don't even know what the technologies for them would be. So, fundamentally, it's it's just it never works out as a good system. That these kind of skills for civilization, I think, uh, it's irritating but true. At least I think it's irritating. I suspect it's true. <laughs> Well, it looks like we've got a lot of questions to start yeah. off next month's live stream with. Thank you, everybody, for your questions. And hopefully we won't have mic problems the next time and we can get a few more in. Yeah, I actually checked if we were still having those. But, and I will try to get some of the questions later, well, probably a few days from now because we have a huge event to plan for on Tuesday. But, again, thanks for joining us, and we will see you on Thursday. Have a great week. So that will wrap us up for the day. I want to thank everyone for joining us, and again if we didn't get to your question, feel free to post it as a comment below and I'll try to get to it this evening. Also you can continue the conversation at any of the forums on Facebook, Reddit, Discord, or our website.